Welcome to another episode of the Speech and Repeat podcast today with Daniel Theobald. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Well, you are the founder and CEO of uh, Vecna Robotics and have done a lot of cool stuff previously as well. And uh, before we head all into, let's say, you know, all these different things and, and basically, you know, going into detail uh, of our, um, yeah, podcast today, uh, we always start the show basically the same way in the sense that we are giving the guest the opportunity to kind of, yeah, introduce himself in a, or go through their professional life in a storytelling way before mm-hmm. our listeners basically get a yeah, kind of a glimpse into, okay, who's the person that we're, let, let's say, you know, yeah. dealing with today. So um, that would be basically, you know, the first, uh, the first question for today. Um, well, so kind of where do you come from? You know, what have been, let's say, what has been your path so far and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, great question. You know, I was very fortunate. I didn't realize it at the time, but being born in uh, San Jose, California, you know, I, I, I was uh, there prior to it being called Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, I grew up in, in this place, this hotbed of technology, and I had some real great opportunities because of that that you know I now realize most people didn't have. For example, uh, my elementary school, um, uh, Laneview Elementary School, was, was one of the first, if not the first, but certainly one of the first elementary schools in the entire world to have a computer lab. Um, we had Commodore PET computers and we had Apple One computers. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I didn't really think much of it uh, in the sense that, yeah, of course our computer has, a, I mean, of course our elementary school has a computer lab. And uh, then, uh, you know, I got uh, to study computers in middle school. I got to study computers and electronics in high school. And, um, you know, this was prior to most people even really understanding what a computer was before, certainly before the internet or any of those things. You know, I grew up in a world of uh, dial-up and uh, bulletin board systems and and uh, you know, building your own computers from scratch. I actually built a uh, an Apple II Plus computer um, from scratch from parts I, I gathered from uh, dumpsters and uh, and swap meets. Um, so you know, it's a little bit of a different world back then. But um, uh, that that really provided me a foundation to pursue my love of technology. And um, you know, in in high school. I was fortunate enough to be chosen as the top computer science student in all of the state of California. Wow. And then, yeah, it was, it was a great honor and, and, and was given uh, part, part of the um, opportunity that created was I was able to go to the Lawrence Livermore National Lab and do AI projects on the Cray computer, which at the time was the fastest com- supercomputer in the entire world. Um, and, and so I, I had the opportunity to program that back in back at that time that was being programmed in Fortran, um, right. a language that people don't hear much about these days. Um, I got to meet some really interesting people there. I, I uh, spent a little time with Edward Teller. Edward Teller is uh, somewhat controversial figure, but, figure, but uh, the uh, widely acknowledged as the father of the hydrogen bomb. Um, and uh, you know, uh, being able to speak to him really was. Um, a formative event for me and that it really made me think about the responsibility we have as engineers and technologists to think critically about the impact the technology we create will have on society and humanity at at large. Um, From there, I was able to go to MIT and my my passion from the beginning was robotics and automation. As a matter of fact, as a freshman in high school, my, uh, my English teacher made us write letters to ourselves um, that she said she was going to deliver to us um, once we got into college. Okay. And um, the PS in my letter, which I had forgotten about, you know, I just received this random letter from myself one day. And the PS in my letter said, PS, make sure to name your company Vecna. <laughs> uh, so I had had this idea of starting this robotics company, you know, from the time I was uh, even pre-high school. And, um, you know, was able to go to MIT and had some really great opportunities to learn and grow there. And then, you know, eventually started this company. And, um, you know, we've taken a very different approach 
to technology, uh, to developing robotics technology than a, a lot of companies. We, we really wanted to solve things in a way that would really empower humanity. You've probably heard a lot about the whole, you know, humans versus robots debate, you know, robots taking jobs, um, being, being something that people are concerned about. Um, obviously, Hollywood has a love affair with evil robots, uh, you know, destroying the human race. Um, our, our approach from day one is to really build technology that makes, makes life better for, for not just a few, but for everyone on this planet. And that has been a really motivating, um, driving factor for everything we've done. Right. And so over the years, we've built a number of solutions that um, are really all about human-robot collaboration and using robots to really empower human workers to be more effective, um, more efficient, to really make their jobs more enjoyable. And, and I can't emphasize that enough. Um, uh, you know, when, when people are working on something that they enjoy, it makes all the difference in the world. Right. A lot of our customers have complained about, um, you know, having very, very hard time hanging on to workers. Some of them have 300% uh, turnover, which means every year on average, they are replacing their entire staff three times, okay. um, which is just crazy, right? Um, it kind of points to a problem. Well, what they found is if they adopt technology in a smart way, it actually makes their staff more likely to stay and progress in a career rather than jumping from job to job. Right. Um, so the one other thing I'll just mention is, is, is we worked on these problems in, in robotics. It became clear to us that there was a real need to help move the industry as a whole for it as well. So the other hat I wear, <clears throat> Excuse me. The other hat I wear is found co-founder and president of an organization called Mass Robotics. Right. Mass Robotics is a, is a industry organization that's really making a, a really um, big impact on helping to bring um, uh, the companies that need robots, the scientists that are trying to build robots, the investors that are helping to finance uh, those deals all together for meaningful conversation and also um, provide resources for young startups who are trying to break into the space. Right. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that already gives a, gives a really great insight into, let's say, you know, um, the really, let's say, interesting stages of your life. And I want to kind of take this, this, this um, you know, the following, the following hour, basically, you know, in a chronologically way, so that it kind of makes sense in, 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 let's say, how we structure our conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I want to start off with, um, with your time at college. So I want to start off by, uh, with, with MIT because I find it very interesting. Let's say that you are, you know, as you said, um, you were born in California and, you know, which, uh, at the time already was, let's say, you know, uh, a great place to be in. And, um, and then you choose basically MIT, you, you go to MIT and, um, I mean, MIT, you know, uh, is obviously known. Uh, for what it is, uh, what it has always been, and what it is also today, and um, you know, with the with the, the great staff, the great faculty, and let's say all the in, uh, you know amazing innovations that are coming out of that place. And I want to get your personal, let's say, opinion from. Obviously, you are most probably still connected with the university in some way. Um, I think uh, you always you always be. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, how was your experience back in the days? And then let's say compared to how you observe the institution kind of evolve and the importance it plays basically, you know, still yeah. today for maybe, you know, technological, because there's one thing is obviously, let's say, you know, um, research uh, and, and let's say, you know, an academic being in an academic institution. But the other thing is having the ability or let's say the ability of an academic institution to produce so much value for the, let's say, for the outside world. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, so how I ended up at MIT is actually a little bit of a funny story. Um, I was um, probably not as motivated as I should have been in high school to um, go to go to college. Um, I, you know, it was just it wasn't something that was top of mind. Um, but I was over at uh, my friend's house one day, Tony Costa, next door neighbor, and uh, he had been receiving a lot of um, college brochures. 
and I was just sitting in his room, sort of browsing through these college brochures. Um, or actually, as I remember correctly now, I was actually programming on his his Amiga computer, and he was looking at the college brochures. And I remember he was sitting on his bed, and he was looking through them, and, and uh, my back was towards him, and he says, oh, hey, here's a really cool school. It's called MIT. They're supposedly the best engineering school in the world. And I looked back over my shoulder, I said, oh. And then he said, but you could never get in there. <laughs> so, um, uh, Interestingly, that was the only school I applied to, um, not because I was confident, but probably because I was, I was uh, lazy and uh, got really lucky and managed to get in. Interestingly, um, I uh, lived not too far from Stanford at the time. Right. And uh, um, I went on a school field trip to Stanford one year as I think a junior, uh, yeah, I think as a junior in high school. And I remember thinking, wow, this place is kind of a dump. Who would really want to come to this school? <laughs> um, completely misinformed, obviously. Right, you know, right. Stanford has a wonderfully beautiful campus and um, a, an amazing school. But, you know, I ended up, uh, ended up coming across the country and going to MIT. And it was a shock. Um, it was a shock for me on a number of fronts. The culture on the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States is very different. Okay very different the weather is very different obviously um yeah my first winter here was rough um but uh it ended up being a really great experience you know i think that traveling uh, seeing different parts of the world one, one thing i did after my freshman year is i went on a uh, international trip it was a uh, a um uh, uh mission to uh, a religious mission actually to um, the dominican republic and I spent two years there, and I, I probably learned more during that two years about the world and people and humanity than, than I did any other time in my life. So I think the idea of leaving home is really important um, to, to learn and to grow and to really think about being a good world citizen. If you haven't seen the world, it's really hard to understand what's going on. And, and um, you know, so I, I'd say that's a really important part of it. Now, MIT specifically um, has a lot to offer. Uh, in many ways, it's the fact that it has the reputation of being one of the best engineering schools in the world that provides the most value because it attracts really talented people. So by far, the most important thing that I got out of MIT was being challenged by my peers. Right. Other students were the biggest asset which is a little bit strange to say, you know, you'd think this great university and the professors and all of the resources and the labs, um, and, and that's a big part of it, obviously. But, but the other students that you get to attend uh, your classes with, that you get to collaborate with, is I'd say by far the biggest asset. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and then there were just a couple of really key professors that I think were really helpful and have continued to be an influence in my life. Rohan Abhiratna, was a really big influence. He was the uh, my advisor and then the director of the mechanical engineering department, still there at MIT. Um, really, really great guy. Um, very influential in my life. And also, um, uh, um, uh, you know, a number of other professors that I worked with over my time there. Um, and, uh, you know, you build relationships and, and trust and, and that type of thing. And so, yeah, MIT is great. Um, now, is a university degree as important now as it used to be? I would say the answer to that's unambiguously no, it is not. Um, it, particularly because technology is changing so quickly. Um, learning any specific technology is not nearly as important as, as having an aptitude, and I would say most importantly, an interest in learning. One of the things when I'm interviewing people for jobs that I think is the most important that I look for is, are you excited about this stuff? Are you passionate about technology? Is this the kind of stuff that you think about even if you didn't have a job in it? Um, because if not, you're not going to do anything really interesting. Yeah. Um, your brain has to be turned on. You have to be excited about the technology. It's like I, I talk about shower time. You know, what are you thinking about when you're standing in the shower? Yeah. Um, if, if at least some percentage of the time your brain doesn't turn to this really interesting engineering problem that you're trying to solve, um, and 
ideally it's even a personal interest or a personal project, not just something you have to do because of work. Those are the type of people that are actually going to make a difference. Um, and so can you learn that by going to a university? Maybe. I think you can learn to learn. I think you can be given a foundation to understand. Um, but um, there's a long, long list of people who have been incredibly successful and have made big impacts in the world that don't have a university degree. So I would always encourage people, pursue university. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, is, it is unambiguously not a bad decision um, in most cases, but it's not strictly necessary. Yeah, true. Well, and I'd say especially with the plethora of online uh, materials available now. I mean, pretty much anyone worldwide can get online and take an MIT class that's been recorded. Yeah, um, it is. It, you're right with that. Um, and I mean, there's a huge discussion around that, right? I mean, the, the overall, let's say, importance of education nowadays and how it has evolved and also obviously taking into account the, let's say, massive amount of online courses. Um, However, uh, I think the one point that you already mentioned before is exactly this, you know, what is, what is the role of a university like MIT nowadays, right? You know, I think the, the let's say, you, you know, the unique, sell, the unique selling point besides, let's say, the brand, right, is still the physical location. So basically mm -hmm. bringing to, so it, because, it attracts, because it attracts, let's say, you know, the minds, you know, that are really able to change the world in one physical place and then puts them together. And then, you know, things just happen, you know, yeah. things, things are being created. It's chemistry. Um, you know, molecules can interact if they're not in the same spot. Uh, a friend of mine told me an interesting story um, about a university in Canada, and I don't remember which one it is. But, um, you know, the university was sort of running in tough times, had not had a lot of success recently. And, and for some reason, the, the professors uh, decided that they needed to picket. Um, and so they went out and they were picketing. You know, they had a picket line at the university. But the fact that they were out there together, they actually started talking and started to have ideas. And it turned out to be like the most innovative period uh, of, of um, research that uh, that university had ever seen. And actually led to this sort of renaissance of, um, of uh, you know, great things happening at that university. So I think your point is, is right on target. Um, the, the fact that I can go to a class and accidentally sit down next to somebody, start a conversation, um, that leads to something amazing. Yeah, the chances of that happening are much, much higher when you're co-located. Hundred percent. You know, and I also take that from my from my educational uh, from my education. You know, it, it was not about let's say you know the information that was let's say you know given uh, during class. You know, because that's commodity. I mean, to, you mm -hmm. know, at the end of the day. But it was really, let's say, about the relationships that were created. You know, and that also let's say you know shape you as a person. And then, like, you know, as you said, I think the, the metaphor is, is spot on. You know, molecules, you know, cannot, re, uh, cannot react yeah. together if they're not in the same place. And, I mean, that's exactly what, what it is, right? And the higher, let's say, and I also argue for that, that, you know, for institutions like, um, like MIT, you know, or let's say leading, leading institutions like that, for example, you know, where the... Um, yeah, the, the, the quality of the individual is just a super, super high. Mm -hmm. It's just the place where things are being created, you know. Yeah, you know, the other thing that, um, that I just thought of as you were saying that is that um, it's super challenging, too. Right. And, and that experience of doing something hard and overcoming, um, I think, is incredibly valuable. When I first arrived at MIT campus, I had never been to the East Coast. I had never flown on an airplane before. I had never left, uh, you know, I'd, I'd left the state of California, but not really that far. Um, and uh, um, the, the, one of the first things I saw was the school paper. The tech was the name of the school paper. And in really large headlines, half page headlines, it said, freshmen, welcome to hell. And, you know, that made a little bit of impression on me, but uh, um, then I experienced it and it was absolutely true. I mean, it is a incredibly challenging environment and sometimes you just feel like, why, 
why am I doing this to myself? You know, you, when you've been up two nights in a row trying to, you know, figure out how to get a lab done or to try and learn some new material. Um, but, uh, you know, that's one of the main reasons that I look for students, you know, when I'm hiring people, I look for students uh, coming out of um, institutions like MIT was because I know that they did something hard and they stuck with it. Right. They got through it. They proved that they could do something hard. And I think that's got a lot of value as well. You know, it, it's really, um, we, we want to make life better. We want to make things easy for humans at a certain level, but we also lose a lot in doing that. Um, the struggle is what creates character. The struggle is what creates satisfaction um, and, and a feeling of accomplishment. And, um, you know, I fear that we lose that a little bit. I don't know. Um, you know, if that's really a big issue, but certainly I, I look for people that have struggled and come out on top when I'm looking for people to hire in my company. I would 100% agree with you, especially, I mean, because if you, if you think about it, if you try to do radical things, if you try to, let's say, you know, really change, change status quo, and you're not just, let's say, doing regular stuff, yeah. then I mean, you know, there's no other option than doing so. And the funny thing is, I think the bar in regards to, let's say, you know, graduates coming out of coming out of university is actually, you know, in, in regards to technology as well, has has gotten higher because, you know, as of right now, if you think about it, you know, just being at university and I, you know, I always I always try to, to make the comparison. Obviously, I have a better insight, let's say what is happening in Europe compared to the U.S., Still, I mean, like I know quite a people that are in the U.S., you know, it is not just it is not enough or it hasn't become enough to just, let's say, you know, being part of university and let's say just finishing your studies because that, you know, that that's basically following a red line that has been, let's say, you know, put down for you Yeah. as a start and as an end. And every step is basically, you know, predefined for you. Yeah. You have to go and execute um, if you really. And I think that's that, you know, looking from the or being in the shoes of an entrepreneur that is, let's say, you know, looking for people or from a company even, you know, that is looking for people that are, let's say, um, you know, that is looking for people that really can help them to get to the next stage and, yeah. you know, help them with the growth they, they want. You know, you're not just looking for the people that are, let's say, top in class, you know, you look for people that let's, you know, that show you that they have more than, you know, just following that red line. Yeah, yeah. Well, because, yeah, their ability to figure stuff out is is key to success in a startup right uh, i can't tell you how many times people have uh directly said or implied that what we're trying to do is impossible or it can't be done or someone else is going to be you know way better at it than us or whatever whatever the the negative um statement is and you know there are really two types of people there's the type of person that says oh i guess you know i guess we shouldn't bother you know somebody else already did this or this is too hard for us or whatever and then there are the people who say no we can do this let's figure this out and and just don't give up and um that's really what it takes uh, you know many of the biggest breakthroughs uh in human history um were simply simply achieved through tenacity not right. giving up um you know if the answers were easy they wouldn't be hard problems yeah exactly um i mean while we're already at it um how about we go into into let's say you starting your first venture mm -hmm. um what was what was what is the story behind it basically you know and then kind of you know obviously telling us what was let's say the beginning but also what was let's say the you know kind of the highlights of that of that adventure yeah, you know, I, I, first of all, I tend to tell people that um, don't start your own company if you can, if you can possibly avoid it, <laughs> um, which sounds a little counterintuitive, but um, it, it is, it is something that consumes your life and uh, it really has to be something that you are absolutely committed to, particularly because a lot of people end up depending on you. But um, I, the reason I started Vecna was I spent a lot of time looking around. I worked at different startups um, and, and they always left me dissatisfied. I always felt like I couldn't fully buy into it um, for, for a number of reasons, you know, and, and a lot of it being around this topic we already talked about of 
without having a need personally to make life better for every human on this planet is is something that I'm driven by. Um, but uh, even just from a, a you know a company culture point of view, how they treat their employees, um, you know how they um, uh, integrity and how they uh, work for their customers. And so after a while, I finally just realized um, that, uh, you know, if I wanted to be able to work for a company that I could fully buy into, I was going to have to start it myself. And that if I was having such a hard time finding this type of company, there are probably a lot of other people out there ha having a hard time finding a company they could buy into as well. So, you know, maybe starting Vecna could help them too. And um, so from day one, we started the company with a very um, ethical, ethically driven mission to empower humanity um, through technology, but to also create a company that, that really um, did the right thing uh, in every case. We do the right thing for our employees. We do the right thing for our customers. We do the right thing for um, society as a whole that we're not just driven by greed and trying to extract as much money from the economy as possible. Right. I mean, you know, anyone with half a brain and, and uh, um, enough motivation can make a lot of money, um, legally or illegally. Um, that's not really a huge challenge, but to be successful and really leave the world in a better place than you found it, to me, that's a worthy goal. That's a worthy challenge. And, um, and that, takes, that takes real talent and real capability and real tenacity to make that happen. Um, so, uh, you know, we sort of, we sort of feel like we've got a little bit of a higher calling, um, in, in terms of doing something that's going to last and, and have a real big impact. So, um, you know, throughout our history, we've done unique things. For instance, we pay our employees to spend 10% of their work week doing community service. Wow. As a matter of fact, this is how mass robotics started. Um, myself and some of my colleagues here felt like there was a real need in the industry um, that wasn't being met. So we used our community service time to help to found uh, this new uh, nonprofit organization. Um, a lot of people do um, more direct things like work for Habitat for Humanity, which builds homes for families that are in need of housing, and work at soup kitchens, uh, tutor and mentor high school students, contribute to STEM education, lots of things like that. Um, but, you know, our, our commitment to um, giving back, you know, and a lot of companies will have community service programs where they'll donate to certain causes. Maybe they'll have a, a quarterly or annual, um, you know, company-wide community service project. And, and that's great. I don't want to in any way, shape, or form um, uh, say that that's not good. Um, but a lot of times it tends to be PR-focused, right? It's more about marketing than really truly being committed to being socially responsible and making the world a better place and that's again just not interesting to me right. um so so that 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 has driven a lot of what vecna has been all about since the beginning right um so more or less what was the idea that when you started out uh with vecna i mean you know um i think it's quite funny that um you know, that story with the letter from high school or pre-high school in regards to name your company Vecna. Um, yeah. What was this, let's say, what was your, um, was it a clear, you know, a clear thought, okay, I'm starting this company, I have this clear vision, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Or was it more or less, you know, just starting out, as you yeah. said, right? If you, if, you, if you cannot start a company, you know, do not start it. And yeah. um, ultimately, what, where I want to go um, is basically, you know, explain what Wagner was doing ultimately, right? Throughout mm -hmm. the years. Was it always the same or did yeah. it evolve? Yeah, I'll walk you through it. So um, my original goal, uh, the thing I was most interested in in high school was hand-eye coordination in robotics. Um, and again, this was really early on before machine vision had grown, uh, you know, to any level of sophistication. Um, but when I was graduating from MIT and, you know, made the decision ultimately to start a company, it was clear that um, the market wasn't ready for robotics yet. And so um, as opposed to trying to force it 
and take investment and try and build um, a robotics company that way, I decided to take a slightly longer path, um, but one that um, would leave control in our hands uh, as long as possible. And so what we did was we started um, making money through a number of different activities. We did a lot of consulting, we did software development, we did a lot of healthcare, um, information technology work, sort of pay the bills while uh, you know, using that to, um, I, I won't say feed my habit, but um, you know, to invest in this idea of long-term, the, the world is going to need ethical robotics companies. And, and robots that are going to really help. And so we did a lot of R&D work on the side. We invested a lot of the, um, the revenue that we obtained from the healthcare side of the business into robotics R&D um, and uh, built some really interesting robots. We did a lot of military funded research, but we always did it very much with the perspective of, we need to have this all leading towards this long-term product roadmap. And um, because of that discipline, we were able to build a very robust portfolio of technology and patents um, that have put us in the leading position in the logistics market. So logistics is, you know, moving things from point A to point B. How, how does that product get from the manufacturer to your shelf uh, in your home? And... Um, it was clear to us from the beginning that robots could play a major role in optimizing logistics um, because a lot of this are things that humans are not necessarily interested in or good at. Um, you know, driving around in a warehouse all day long, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, um, do that a thousand more times, um, you know, is, is not, probably not a great job for human beings at the end of the day. Certainly not, um, most people wouldn't find that fulfilling. Um, so the idea was we could focus on logistics, robots could really help relieve, relieve some of the burden from human workers and allow them to focus on more interesting, more useful tasks. So, um, you know, our early research into robotics was focused on um, uh, solving the what I would call the navigation problem in, in a robust way. We actually started out in hospitals because that's the business we already knew um, from our healthcare technology work. And so we started deploying robots in hospitals. And interestingly, most of them were in Europe, a lot of them in France um, and, and some other places. But these robots would take medication from the pharmacy to the nursing wards, you know, so take, take the medication from the pharmacy to wherever it needs to go in the hospital. And our hypothesis was if we could figure out how to robustly navigate in a hospital, um, that a warehouse would be cake, you know, a warehouse would be pretty easy after a hospital because hospitals are just challenging places. You've got not only trained staff, but then you've got patients, you've got sick people, you've got wheelchairs and gurneys and equipment everywhere, blocking hallways, um, you know, really crowded environment. I um, mean, also you have this really um, strong um, uh, need to move fast, right? When a medication needs to get somewhere in the hospital, a lot of times it, it needs to get there very quickly. Anyway, so um, we, we successfully deployed robots in, in a number of hospitals and improved and improved and improved the product but we built the product in a general purpose way so that it wouldn't just work in these hospital robots, but that they would work in any piece of equipment. Right. And we really used that as our, as our learning process, um, but explicitly decided that we weren't going to try and scale yet. We weren't gonna try and grow the robotics part of the business because we felt like the market indicators were not yet there that would, that would give us confidence that this could be successful as a standalone business. Um, so, um, you know, we continued to invest, we built our patent portfolio, we did tremendous amount of research into um, uh, both robotics. And then one of the things we realized early on was that a robot moving from point A to point B is great, but a robot's just as capable at wasting time as a human worker is if it's not tasked effectively. So much earlier than any of our competitors, we realized that the really important thing at the end of the day wasn't necessarily the robot. It was effective task management. Right. And the robot is yet just another tool. 
Um, and part of the reason we realized this is because as we would be delivering medication in the hospital, there were times when a human was a better choice to do the job. Right. Um, you know, a human sometimes is allowed in a hospital when it's really important to run down the hallway. And, uh, you know, our robot was never going to be able to do that for safety reasons. So sometimes if a medication really needed to get somewhere fast, our system would send a human runner to deliver that medication instead of the robot. Yeah. Well, how, how do you manage that? Um, uh, and that led early on to some work we did with the Office of Naval Research here in the U.S. around this idea of orchestration and effective task planning. Um, and, and so that quickly moved us towards this point of the robots are not the most important thing. The most important thing is getting the work done. And if the robots can be helpful in getting the work done, great. Um, but at the end of the day, the thing that matters is getting the work done. And the other thing that we really realized is that the human worker is an indispensable part of that. We're not looking to replace humans. We're looking to make the humans more effective than ever. Um, and humans have unique skills that, uh, that robots and AI um, you know, may never have um, in, in the foreseeable future, but certainly don't have anytime and won't have anytime soon. Problem solving. Um, creative uh, ability to um, deal with problems that uh, you know pop up. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, I assume your your um, listeners are probably familiar with that name. He he had a really interesting tweet once when you know there was sort of this big public failure of of one of his big factory automation projects, and um, he was taking a lot of heat. And Elon Musk said, he said, um, it, you know, it was my fault. I made a mistake. I tried to over-automate. And then he goes on to say, humans are vastly underrated. Yeah, I mean, and until you've actually tried to build a robot to do a task that a human used to do, you just don't realize how absolutely, incredibly amazing humans are. The yeah. things that we take for granted um, that we're capable of doing are just absolutely amazing. So um, it's, it's, uh, it was really insightful for him to say that, and uh, I really respect him for it. But it really points to this fact again, that if you're trying to just replace humans, you're on a fool's errand. Yeah. What we need to do is leverage the best of humans and the best of technology right. and automation to achieve superior results than we could with either one alone. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I think there's a you know, uh, only people that are really, let's say, you know, deeply within, you know, within the field and let's say, you know, know or from experience, you know, how things work and what the boundaries are. You know, I think you can only, I think you can only understand that or you come to that understanding once you push boundaries, yeah. you know. And, and it all seems easy until, until you've actually tried. Exactly. I, got a fun, I got a really quick, funny story. We were working on a, uh, a military project for a robot. This was the bear robot, actually. The bear had a certain amount of fame for a short period of time a few years ago. Um, it was a robot designed to rescue soldiers from the battlefield. We were working on this robot, and we were in a meeting with one of our government uh, um, contacts. And, and he says, and, and you know what? I'd also like the robot to be able to pick up that glass of water. <laughs> And I said, and you know, also keep in mind, this is many years ago now, um, over, over a decade ago. And I said, well, you know, that's not really in scope of this project. And, and besides that, it's a, it's a really open-ended, uh, an open research problem. Nobody has been able to solve that. And he says, well, why? He says, we paid for cameras so the robot can see the glass. So just <laughs> tell it to pick it up. Right. <laughs> And of course, that makes perfect sense, right? It's got eyes and it's got, a, it's got a computer, which is like a brain, just tell it to pick it up. And what people don't realize is that what that camera gives us is a bunch of numbers, right? right? That camera just spits out a, 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 a long, long series of numbers. And somehow as a programmer, you have to take that series of numbers and turn it into some kind of useful information to then command some motors to do something that helps you know right anyway the problem is this is really 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 hard stuff we yeah. can look at a picture and we can say oh that's a person yeah computer can't do that it just sees a bunch of numbers right. now we're getting better 
we're making progress. But the point is, humans are amazing, and we we our ability to solve problems we just completely take for granted. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, and I think uh, that is something that has been recently, I mean, shown. Um, you know, I've I've talked to talked to uh, uh, one of the you know uh, he was a professor at the Technical University of Munich for uh, robotics. Um, and uh, he's now leading the, um, the research, the uh, machine learning research group at uh, uh, Volkswagen. And um, he said, you know, the one thing that I'm actually scared of is hype. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah. and you know, and the funny thing is, um, you know, because- Wait, So I'm, he's, not, he's not scared of robots taking over the world? <laughs> you know, that's, you know, there's, I think there's three sides to that or three, let's say three perspectives to that. There's, let's say people that, uh, you know, are neither in the business, neither in the, let, let's say, in the field of technology. So, and maybe that is media, you know, yeah. <laughs> who are basically saying, you know, or um, maybe also Hollywood, right? So, yeah. who, who are, um, you know, displaying this, uh, this, this utopian f uh, future. Um, and then there is the business side, which are, you know, uh, over-promising, obviously. And then there's the technology side, which is, you know, and that's the funny thing. I'm, uh, I'm in a very good position to, to, you know, combine all these perspectives because I see them, you know, uh, too, too often. It's, the funny thing is that, you know, if you want to really, you know, have realistic uh, opinions, right, you talk to people that are really, let's say, at the forefront of technology. Yeah. Right? And, and, uh, and that is where you get the answers, right? Yeah. And you know what? Funny thing is I actually want to make the trans, trans, uh, transition right now towards um towards actually this towards the actual or let's say the status quo of what is happening in robotics and artificial intelligence as well because there's the funny thing is that obviously um i think in in, in mass media and in let's say uh also in business uh ai is let's say more or less the one thing that is talked about most um and but there's a clear difference in that right and there's huge discussions about, okay, you know, um, that white color is obviously, you know, more effective than blue color. And that is also, you know, due to the fact that exactly what you just said is that, you know, humans and the way, you know, the abilities of human, the physical uh, abilities of humans, right? It's just, and then con connected with, you know, the, the intelligence that we have, that is just, let's say it's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So what I want to get from you now is, or kind of, you know, as my next following question, is what is your personal, let's say, opinion on the status quo of what is happening? I mean, there's a lot of interesting and a lot of amazing things happening, right? But how would you judge on these things, right? How would you yeah. judge on the AI stuff that is happening, you know, which is not related to robotics, and then obviously also what is happening in robotics combined with AI? Yeah. Well, I would agree with, um, with your previous guest in that, probably the number one thing we have to fear is hype um, in, in the industry because what it does is it creates unrealistic expectations and um, you know, also creates problems in terms of public perception. Right. Uh, AI is in uh, many ways a misnomer, meaning it's not really artificially intelligent um, intelligence um, implies something that's not going on in any of these systems. I would say these systems are um, uh, um, maybe uh, intelligence, intelligence simulations in a sense or, or you know, mimic intelligence. Um, but I think artificial intelligence, that's probably the best way to say it is mimic, you know, intelligence mimicking. Yeah. I am maybe. <laughs> um, but, but they're certainly not artificial intelligence in the sense that they uh, have any ability to reason in any way that we would recognize. Right. Um, the vast majority of companies um, out there that are working on AI are really just rebranding the, the automation work, the, the um, expert system work, whatever it is that they're already doing as AI because AI is popular right now. Um, so, you know, deep learning, um, is, is I think, uh, a, a great example of where there have been some very specific, uh, improvements in our academic understanding of the potential for AI, I'm air quoting now, but, um, that's really 
um, still a long way from any kind of reasoning, right? It is pattern matching. And that pattern matching can get very, very, very sophisticated. But at the end of the day, deep learning is all about pattern matching and, um, and uh, you know, learning a control law or something like that. It's a bunch of math is the point I'm trying to make. Just like that camera was spitting out a whole bunch of numbers, AI is just a whole bunch of math. And now you could argue, of course, well, that the human brain is just a very complicated machine that does a whole bunch of math. Yes, um, maybe that's true, um, but uh, the, the difference is that what we're solving, where AI is effectively um, making a difference is very solving very straightforward, um, very specific problems, not trying to replace the human brain. And so I think it's just important for, for the layperson, for the listener to keep that in mind. You know, when someone's trying to create fear of AI taking over the world or taking over your job, which is probably um, even more scary in most cases, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's not, um, we're a long way from systems that are going to think um, any, anywhere close to uh, as effectively as human beings can. Now that doesn't mean that they aren't going to provide tremendous value. Again, as an assistant to humans, we use them every day, right? The fact that I can get on my phone and look up anything on the web. If I, if I had that ability, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I would have been a legitimate superhero. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, it would have been, it would have been mind blowing for people that they could ask me any question and I would come up with this, you know, amazing answer. Um, uh, the fact that I'd be able to communicate with anybody around the world, right? I mean, that's like tele telepathy, right? I mean, it's yeah. just absolutely amazing. I would be a superhero. And that, I, when we're just talking 30, year, 30 years ago, we had no idea of what we would be capable of now. And that trend is just continuing. So I don't want to imply in any way that, you know, AI, air quoting again, is not going to have incredible impacts on what we are able to do as humans. Um, I would just caution people to think of it as a tool, like any piece of automation, and to not get so wrapped around the axle trying to tax robots or tax AI and those type of things just doesn't make any sense. 100%. I, I, I totally agree with you. And um... You know, the funny thing is, uh, if you look at, if you look at, let's say, you know, re at the real life and at, let's say, daily operations of, let's say, you know, of our lives, uh, besides, you know, the, um, you know, the, the web or the social platforms, right? You need, you need people, you know, and you need the, the, the haptics, you know, and the, the, let's say, you know, that combined with the brain of a human and to, and ultimately and that is the keyword that you also mentioned is you know to generalize you know to generalize on you know the things that we are able to see you know to generalize knowledge from previous you know situations to that situation that we particularly let's say you know encounter at that single moment mm -hmm. and 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 that is and, and and that is the funny thing and and you know i if you talk to people <laughs> i also i also i also love that you say that you know it's just ultimately it's a bunch of math right and that's a funny thing if you talk right you know there's so many different types of positions right nowadays right from a machine learning engineer ai engineer and whatsoever right there's so many terms of let's say positions right but if you talk to classical mathematicians right about that stuff i just love it because you know in most cases where it is about pattern recognition, right? We have a bunch of data, we have a bunch of, let's say, information, we have a bunch of zeros and ones, right? The funny thing is that a mathematician will always say like, yeah, you know what? There's, a, there's so many algorithms, right? There's so many algorithms and I can use all, also other algorithms, but you would not coin them as machine learning, right? You would not coin them as artificial intelligence. And that is the funny thing is because, you know, and that, that is the truth. I mean, you know, math has been there for such a long time and you know i'm always so astonished by people that you know come from that traditional background just from purely math on on their ability to just you know with a flip to let's say you know take a machine learning problem you know uh, mm -hmm. an ai problem and just let's say you know tackle that one and, and you know Correctly. just 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 take on yeah. it yeah yeah you know again it's a tool 
And uh, sometimes it's the right tool, sometimes it's not the right tool. And uh, I think a lot of investors right now get sort of stuck in this, uh, you know, back in the US in the, you know, in the 99, 2000 timeframe, you know, if you had .com in your company name, you know, you were, you were the hottest thing. And then of course we know how that, that went. A lot of people lost a lot of money. Um, and it's sort of the same thing right now where investors are out there trying to invest in AI because it's the next big thing. And so of course everybody has AI. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so, you know, th th it's just the reality. It's just the way the world works. Um, and I think if we keep a, you know, keep a steady hand and actually focus on the long term, um, we, we ultimately come out ahead. Yeah, 100%. Um, the, you know, and our strategy at Vecna Robotics has been to go after, you know, sort of some of the hardest problems where there's the biggest impact. So what we do right now is we provide automated material handling equipment. So think of a driverless forklift. Okay. Right. So we can go out and find a pallet and we use, we use AI, uh, but we will go out and we will find a pallet. Uh, we use deep learning approach to detect the pallet, to identify um, its features, and then to uh, use that to guide the robot to pick up that pallet completely without human uh, intervention and take it where it needs to go and put it back down again. Um, so that's one of the main things we do is operate in these complex environments. Um, so we use a lot of AI um, because the, the way that those problems used to be solved with traditional AGVs, automated, automatic guided vehicles, would be that you would, you'd put a wire in the floor or a magnetic tape in the floor and the robot had a magnetic sensor that would sense where that wire is. And so it would basically drive on a track, right? So it was basically a train but they called it an automatic guided vehicle because you couldn't see the train tracks. The train tracks became more virtual in a sense. Um, but what our, our technology does is that it really allows the system to plan in real time, where should it be driving? So it, it really moves this whole, um, the whole thing a step forward where you don't just have a system that's following a predefined track. You have a system that's able to look out in the world, see the world, understand, air quoting, understand what, what is there and then make reasonable decisions about how to navigate from point A to point B. For instance, if there's an obstacle in its way, a traditional AGV would just sit there and wait forever until the obstacle was removed. Our robots are actually able to say, wow, there's something in the way, I need to get over there, can I go around it? Can I take a different path to get there? So it, it, is, it is certainly increasing the intelligence, um, uh, you, you know, the mimicking of human intelligence um, up another layer. Right. But is ultimately, is it artificially intelligent? Nah, it's a word. I guess we can define it however we want. Right. So then let's, let's, let's talk, uh, let's talk tech, let's talk technology then. I mean, taking that problem, right? We have a forklift or let's say we have a robot that is, let's say, you know, moving in that environment. I'm assuming, I mean, that is, you know, in the sense of classical computer vision problem, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we take, we take up on a camera. Um, but the part that, you know, what I'm thinking about right now is okay. You know, I have a camera, uh, and you know, I, I have object detection. All right. But the part of, um, understanding what are other possibilities where I can, let's say, you know, drive to, or let's say get around. What else is, let's say, what is, what else is feeded in? What else, what, what are, what are other information besides, you know, the things that I can think of is obviously, okay. You know, the, 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 the information that I get from the camera, as well as let's say maybe the floor mm -hmm. plan. So let's say the data of, uh, of let's yeah. say the building and let's say maybe also fixed, fixed, um, fixed, things that are, let's say, on the, on the floor, infrastructure. infrastructure, for example, machinery, yeah. whatever that is. How else, like what, what, what else is included into that? Yeah. Well, so um, as I mentioned earlier, we took a very different approach where we really tried to solve the general purpose navigation problem, the general okay. purpose autonomy problem in, in, in these type of facilities. So our robots um, can, can um, use a wide range of uh, platforms and sensors. We can basically, our software is called Pivotal, and we've got uh, an autonomy kit, which is basically Pivotal in a black box. And you can put that on any piece of equipment, and that basically becomes the driver. So that black box is like the brain 
that then, you know, that's able to then um, navigate that piece of equipment in the real world. But we also have to add sensors, right? Because it has to be able to see. So we use um, visible light cameras. We use LIDARs. LIDAR is a, a laser range finder uh, that's, that, that sweeps across. Um, we use uh, um, uh, time of flight sensors. We use um, sonars. We use, uh, um, uh, anyway, just a whole range of different sensors depending on what's right for the situation. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, at the end of the day, what happens is that the robot uses those sensors to populate a virtual version of the world in its brain. It basically builds a model of the world, right? Think The Matrix, if you've seen the movie The Matrix, yeah, right? Yeah. It basically builds this artificial world, idealized artificial world in the robot's brain that it can then um, use to reason about how it can get its task done. So if its task is to go from loading dock A to loading dock C, it has this model of the world in its head, and then it can essentially simulate or try out different approaches to getting there. Um, this is kind of what we do as human beings, right? We sort of have a model of the world, even, even though I can only see what's in my office right now, I've got memories of the yeah. rest of my office building. And if I need to go to the bathroom, my brain actually plays, and we don't even realize it most of the time, but my, actually, my brain actually just plays a little simulation of, oh, do I know how to get to the bathroom? Let me see, I'd go out this door, I'd turn left, I'd go down the hallway, and I'd go in the door on the right. So that's kind of what the robot does as well. It, it will verify that it's got a way um, through this virtual world by, by trying it out ahead of time to get where it needs to go. And so then that's sort of the high level plan, right? That's, that's my plan I'm gonna execute. And then as I start executing that plan, I may run into unexpected things along the way. Right. It may be that my map of the world had a pathway that went down a certain aisle in the warehouse, but when I actually get there, I didn't know it at the time, but there's an obstacle there. There's a, a, a pallet that got knocked over, and so I can't get through. So a really important part of then is how do you deal with those exceptions to my plan? And so what we do is we have a, an approach we call iterative plan and repair. So we've got a plan. It's the best plan we can come up with based on the knowledge we currently have in our, in our model of the world. We start to execute that plan. While we execute that plan, we gain more information. We learn more about the world and we're able to update our, our model. As we update that model, it may become apparent that our old plan is no longer the best plan, right. that there's a better plan for getting where we need to go. For example, in the case where the aisle was blocked. So my original plan didn't know the aisle was blocked. Best plan was to go down that aisle. I get there, I see that the aisle is blocked, I update my world model, and then I basically replan, and I find a new best plan to get there. It's like when you're driving in your car with the GPS and you make a wrong turn. Right, right, right. It, you know, doesn't skip a beat. It just says, okay, no problem. Go this way instead. And it's the same thing. That's what we're doing in our system, but in real time. And uh, that's, um, uh, that's something that's only possible because the system has enough sensors and, and, and a model of the world that goes beyond just following a line, right? You can see how if I were just following an actual wire in the ground, I can't do that, right? If I'm just following a wire in the ground and I get and it's blocked, I'm stuck. So, um, and this is a, again, I think what can lead to this idea of things being artificially intelligent is they they have behaviors that seem more like human operators. Yeah, that's I mean, just math. But it's 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 truly great engineering work. So, um, you know, uh, it's it's definitely you know, I mean you know the, the technology that we have right now especially what you mentioned you know in terms of the, the different types of sensors that we have you know the uh the depreciation of you know prices for that technology obviously as well um you know enables just to tackle these you know these massive amounts of use cases and you know uh it's also something that you mentioned prior is is it ultimately comes down on whether you know there's a case to that you know whether there's let's say something that you can solve right whether there's let's say uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, ultimately, merit to, to the activities. So, uh, 
however you might want to call it, right? And however it may please investors or whoever that may be, uh, it's just simply great engineering work, you know, and uh, definitely heads up for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Daniel, it was, a, it was really a pleasure talking to you. Um, it was really great having you on the show and uh, I hope we can, you know, pick up that conversation maybe in the future as well. Happy to anytime. Thank you.